Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. I'm still Jim. How's it going, Jeff? Still Jim. Even despite all the current situation, you're still Jim. Yes. You know, I, I, my handle on Twitter used to be uh, Jimmy Mac I am. Actually, it still is. And I was thinking I could change that to Jimmy Mac I am you. That would really throw people for a loop. Confusing and a little bit disturbing, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. How are you managing? I'm managing fine. I mean, you know, having the kids home, I, I work from home anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Having the kids home has been a little bit of an extra challenge, but they're doing a really good job. I think after the first day of thinking, okay, it, if dad's not on the call, that means we can do stuff together. Mm-hmm. And so I'd get the question, when's your, you know, when's your next call? When are you going to be done your calls? As if once the calls are done, the day is over. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges when you work from home and you have family members that they think your day and what you have to do is dictated by when you have calls. But just like people who work in office, we have to get work done as well. Right. Yeah, I've realized that um, I'm, I'm not in a quarantine, right? I mean, I'm fine. My wife's fine. And, but I work from home all the time. But quarantine life is pretty much the same as my normal life anyway. So really not that right. much of a difference for me anyway. I did try to go to Starbucks on Monday morning because I just, I felt like I needed that caffeine rush and the buzz that that environment gives me to, to, to dive into Monday. And I got there and their dining area was closed. So I said, wasn't meant to be, went home. And yeah, you know, the, the, the equivalent of quarantine myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, it is what it is. And, I think it needs to happen to flatten the curve, right? As as I get so, hopefully flatten the curve and hopefully safe. find a vaccine. Yeah, some promising news today, so we'll see how that works out. Yeah. So today we want to talk about something that has been coming up in a lot of the recent work I'm doing. That's how we assess uh, CIAM maturity, customer or consumer maturity. And I know you've been working on updating. Uh, the model that we use for that. Do you want to talk about that some more? Sure. And to give everyone a background, so we have used this this model for uh, as long as I've been with Identity. I inherited it and it's been around probably for a decade where it's, you know, the six capability areas of that we, we use to grade maturity, both currently and in the future. Um, and it's primarily a a subjective exercise, even though we do have a rubric that says, you know, these are the the things that you can do to raise your maturity score to give an explanation of how we achieved a maturity score. And it's evolved over time. I mean, really, if you look back 10 years of where the maturity model was, it's not that drastically different today, but it's matured both with, you know, how the industry has matured and also, you know, based on customer feedback and the, the work we've done. And we've been doing a lot of customer IAM projects within the past year or two. And I wanted to put a little bit more meat around what some of the those metrics within each of those capability areas would be uh, relative to CIAM. And so some of this stuff is probably 
um, guided more because of the it, one thing about CIM is that, you know, within workforce, it's it's much more generic as you go from organization to organization. How you onboard and offboard employees is, you know, there, there's common practices. When it comes to CIM, you'd be talking about a B2B scenario where your customers are other businesses, or you could be talking about a, a individual consumer. Uh, so onboarding somebody could be quite different. It could be you know, delegated administration model in the B2B, or it could be um, a registration process when it comes to a consumer and all kinds of hybrids in between. And so as I go through this list, it's not going to, you know, the light bulb is not going to come on for everybody that, oh yeah, that's how our CIM environment works. But, you know, I just wanted to share some of this information so people can get a sense for, you know, the thought patterns behind it. Yeah, that makes sense because every, you know, I think the one thing that I've seen is the consumer side is very organization specific, like you said. I mean, it's everyone kind of does it a little bit different way. I mean, there's still some things that are in common, obviously, but, but yeah, there is no one size fits all really for anyone, especially selling the customer side. Yeah, sure. It's like um, some of the CIM projects I've been involved with are a single website where it's like, are there single application, whether it's a website or a mobile app, but everything's kind of tying back to the same business functionality. And I'm working with a client right now where they've got 60 websites or 60 applications that all need to be connected. It's a totally different challenge. They're both CIM. Um, so anyway, more on the maturity model. So within, I kind of stuck pretty, pretty much on the rails of the um, major capabilities we've been talking about in the past. So it's Things like IAM governance, authentication, authorization, user lifecycle management, et cetera. So I'm going to break those down within and kind of pick on a few and we can just kind of discuss them. So within the IAM governance area, we always talk about you need to have a formal program. You need to have uh, policies and standards established, right? So that, those are still there. But I added one around application inventory established and formally maintained them. You know, this is a big one for me is a lot of times we start working with organizations and they build that application inventory for the first time for our project. And really, this is something that I don't even think this is an IEM thing. This is something that the enterprise should be doing, should have a good handle over what are our applications and what are our systems that exist in the environment? Who are the owners? Um, you know, and then from an IEM perspective, what is the form of authentication where the users maintain things like that? So that's something that I wanted to start to, you know, use as a metric. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't know what the applications you have are, how are you going to secure them and how are you going to provide access to them? So it seems kind of like a no brainer. And I agree. It's not necessarily specific to IAM. I think that's generally more like an IT inventory, but it's crucial for identity and access management, because if you want to integrate those things, you have to, you have to be aware of them. And, you know, I think sometimes our view gets a little bit skewed toward the side of immaturity because let's be honest, you don't really call an advisory services firm um, if things are going really great, (laughs) right? We're typically, you know, helping figure out how to get out of, you know, murky waters than we are in the smooth sailing area. But, um, you know, application inventories, employment, you know, formal program management, you know, those sorts of things are sort of the, the bedrock of how you're going to build services and for, for which systems. Right. You know, and one of the 
things I've, I found, this is not, some of these aren't CIM specific, but so a couple of the areas that I also added were whether or not a formal PMO, uh, enterprise architecture discipline, and enterprise change management exists. It's surprising a lot of organizations just don't have those capabilities, you know, especially organizations that have a small staff and a very large uh, CIM footprint. So a lot of times where you see maturity around PMO and around enterprise architecture and change management are where you have, have uh, large staff organizations and they kind of built those capabilities around, you know, from all the way back to their mainframe days and things like that. But even more organizations that have come along since, they typically have those, but those are, if they don't exist, you're kind of going into a program like I am where you need a lot of structure and you need a lot of formality to be successful. And those baseline capabilities don't exist. And that, that can be a major stumbling block. Yeah. Where do you see the customer representation being in governance? Is there any? I, I, I Yeah, I think that there's two things at play. One is there's an enterprise goal that's trying to be achieved, right? We want to have a common experience for our customer. Let's just say that's the, that's the overriding goal. So there's a common experience of, you know, like you don't feel like you're going to 10 different websites. You get all 10, it feels like you're in one website. So that's the enterprise goal. And then you have the teams that are tasked with, you know, they might be business units or however they're organized, where they are responsible for providing functionality or running a business through a website. Now they have very specific goals that, you know, the common experience in their opinion doesn't really, isn't what it's all about. And so it's blending those two views together and pulling them together that, you know, you have a forum to make sure that neither one of those is completely sacrificed. The two, the two sides of the spectrum where you want to have, you want to achieve enterprise goals, but you have to achieve business unit goals as well and get those to work together. That's, that's one of the things that comes to mind. What are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense. It's, it's really, you know, what is that ex- the customer experience supposed to be? And I think I am plays a hand in shaping that vision of the journey of the customer experience when they engage with, you know, the, the business. So like you said, you know, a, a single approach, or a unified approach to accessing services, for example, is a really common one, right? Less passwords, you know, a more of a single type of account approach. And I know that there's a lot of organizations out there that struggle with multiple logons for their different services that they might offer. So um, having someone that is, arc, you know, not architecting, but, you know, explaining the vision for the customer journey and what is being seen as the optimal path, I think is an important part of the governance side of things to make sure that whatever IAM services are being developed, you know, line up with, with that vision for the organization. Yeah. And that's a, brought up something interesting in my mind, which is that a lot of times with our advisor engagements, we schedule meetings called voice of the customer, getting that, you know, either a representative of somebody who can speak on the behalf of the customer, uh, somebody from marketing, for example, or somebody who, you know, deals with frontline support issues, uh, or if you can actually get representatives of your customer population. I did this once with the university where they actually had us meet with students and that became the voice of the customer. And what I found like so interesting was that um, 
you know, throughout the week, we did a voice to the customer meetings at the end. Throughout the week, everybody was saying, you know, we need the ability to link a student's ID with their Facebook and things like that. And we got the students in the room. They're like, no, we do not want our academic records tied to what we're doing on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> or, or anything like that. Um, it was like completely contradicted what people thought. So it was a very valuable moment. Yeah, I'll bet. All right. So that's governance. I'm assuming we'll probably talk about authentication next. Right. Yeah. Authentication. So that's our, our second capability. And really where I started with this was, I think a sign of maturity is, are you on the right authentication platform now that it's going to serve you into the future? Or do you have to stop and pick a new platform? So if you're already on something that, you know, you'll basically just upgrade and continue to use, your program's in a, in a much better place than if you have to go out and um, investigate that. Now, it doesn't mean that's not the right answer. It just means that you're already starting at a point where you've, you've got the technology and you can just kind of start to build your um, build improvements on top of that technology. That one might be a little bit specific to the client that I'm working on, but you know, that was the idea is that, and I, and I think one, this is one of the keys to success, especially in the authentication space is being on the right platform, being on a platform that you're not looking to replace in three or four years because the vendor hasn't continued to, you know, invest in the solution. And so that's one of the things where I know like you can't just go with a client, go into a client, and just, you know, throw the Gartner magic quadrant up and say, you know, pick somebody in the leader quadrant, but someone who's not on the quadrant or not kind of an up and comer, you kind of have to ask yourself the question of, you know, are they going to be around long-term? At least that's one of the questions I ask myself. And like I said, just because they're not on the quadrant or not in a leader position doesn't mean they won't be around, but it is something that I have a concern about or that I'm going to question is what is the, um, the vendor's track record in terms of research and development and investing in their product. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these organizations that are startups, especially maybe, maybe their business model revolves around being acquired and that can throw a big wrench into a product. Sometimes the acquisition goes well and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so you want to make sure you pick something that, you know, has some, some solid, you know, grounding beneath it. But I think that's also part of the importance of trying to build around some of the standards that have been developed from an authentication standpoint, like, like OAuth 2. Yeah, OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect. And we've got a session coming up uh, with somebody, I think our next session is going to be with somebody who is, you know, very, very much on the front lines of that. And I worked with him on a project and, you know, OpenID Connect is definitely the preferred standard going forward. Obviously, SAML is, is just... Um, well adopted it's the integrations are pretty easy but they only go you know they don't go as deep as something like open id connect can um so also in the authentication space just having mature password management processes um being able to use your this is a big one in the cim space being able to use your access management system to secure api authentication so a lot of organizations are investing in, in API gateways, but even if they're exposing APIs individually, you know, what is going to provide the OAuth 2 service to be able to uh, perform the authentication? 
And if you can leverage your access management system, all the better. Um, federation, bring your own identity, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to detect behavioral anomalies. So this is one that I think is really an up and coming uh, capability where, you know, I think it was at Gartner's conference, they said, it, I don't remember the exact year, it was only like two years out or something where 40% of access management vendors will have the ability to use artificial intelligence and behavioral analytics to, um, to as part of the authentication process. To me, this is, this is big stuff. This is, again, where you need to be, you don't want to be in that 60% who aren't investing and who aren't making that part of their platform. You want to be with the 40% that, that are and that are future facing. Yeah, I think it's important though to understand what the capabilities are because it seems like every organization, every product is saying, oh yeah, we have AI and you know and analytics and all this other stuff. And sometimes there is a big difference between you know what what the expectation is and what the reality is between the two. So I think it's something to to take a look at when you're working with you know products and vendors out there is to really understand when they say AI, what does that mean? And what exactly are they doing? Because it's, I think it's almost become too prevalent. I mean, you know, I was just at RSA a few weeks ago and it seemed like every booth had some sort of AI statement, right? About, around their product. Didn't matter what it did, <laughs> right? AI was somehow involved. So I think there's something just to be, you know, cautious of and under, and truly understand what is it that their product is doing with that AI and things like behavior analysis and, and see if it makes sense or not. I think that's a great point. I mean, here, anytime you get a marketing term, it's like, uh, we're, we're a zero trust platform. Okay. What does that mean? So <laughs> <am> I. <laughs> yeah. I don't trust anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to eat this free lunch. Okay. Maybe I will. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, All right. Yeah. The next area was authorization. Um, and it, it still kind of, you know, starts with one place to go and who has access to what being able to see that in your environment, uh, especially when you have a, a large swath of applications. That's key. And again, some of these are probably because of the specific client that I'm working with, um, the ability to manage roles centrally, uh, to bundle, you know, whether that role is a single application role or we're talking about the, you know, quote unquote business roles, which are, you know, based on, being in a certain business role, I'm a certain kind of customer, I'm a member, or I am a uh, an employee, I get some default access, some group of applications and roles within those applications. That's a, a mark of maturity, at least the ability to even be managing in that way. And it makes user administration a lot more simple when you can, you know, automate role assignment and you can manage it based on business role. Mm -hmm. Does, does classical role-based access control make sense in the consumer space? It depends on if the use cases there, right? So um, the client I'm working with now, I think someone made the the statement today, like business roles, we we don't have them today. And I said, yes, I agree. You don't have them today. It may make sense in the future because it can make access administration onboarding people simpler. If you know that when somebody joins and they are of a certain role or of a certain type of user, 
we should get access to multiple systems. And I think it can make sense, right? Because um, getting them all the access they need right up front makes sense. And then if they no longer are a user of that type, taking that access away. So I, theoretically, I think it makes sense. What, what did you have in mind? Well, I just, you know, I think, I think roles make sense, but there's a time and place for everything. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that an organization should strive to try to bundle roles across services unless it truly makes sense. Sometimes right. there's kind of like the desire is, oh yeah, we're going to have role base everything. And it doesn't make sense. I, you know, maybe it's more of an attribute based approach, um, but I think it's something to think about from a construction and architect standpoint when it comes to the entitlements is, you know, how do you intend customers to use your services, right? If I'm a, um, let me just pick something off the top of my head here, you know, Google user, I have Gmail, I have calendar, I have contacts, you know, maybe I have, a, um, you know, hangouts or whatever it may be, or maybe I'm using Google Fi for my, you know, voice or Google voice, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, how are those services supposed to tie together? And is there a role that encompass all of those? Or is it a combination of roles or attributes that gives me, you know, the access to the things that I need? Uh, I think they've done, a, you know, a really good job of obviously single sign-on because your Google ID pretty much covers all of that. Um, but there's some organizations that struggle with trying to tie those services together underneath a common, um, you know, authentication and authorization banner. Right. I think I think you're making a great point, Jeff, which is that I think every time you're going to take something like that, you need to rationalize it. And same with the AI that you brought up earlier is, okay, is this going to bring us value? Is this something that we, you know, the investment or, you know, use that that, um, uh, that common phrase is the juice worth the squeeze because getting to the point of using business roles is not something that is going to be, a simple endeavor is going to require some work. So do you get enough value from doing that work to make it worth it? Right. What's next? Um, in the user lifecycle management area, um, you know, are, is our common user registration system that fulfills all use cases? Um, one ID per person. I, this is generally what I think organizations strive for is one ID per person. Having multiple IDs per person is generally a hassle. At the same time, um, there is a balance where if you make it so that the person can't create a new ID and yet they can't access their old ID, they may walk away. And so you have to be able to rationalize how many, you know, how difficult you make it. So um, I think that's, you know, I have it here as a as an item in the maturity area, but the idea is, um, is that the norm where, you know, having multiple IDs per person is the exception rather than, you know, it's the, the, the use case that keeps popping up all the time. Um, machine IDs. So I think this is a big thing that organizations are really coming across as like, okay, so if you had centralized identity management, it's only been focused on the human. What about all the machine IDs that exist within applications uh, or what about the machine IDs that are being issued potentially to clients to access APIs. And so that's all part of the big IAM picture and the life cycle of those identities has to be managed as well. And so it's just something to make sure that we 
uh, take a look at that and, and understand the current state approach. Yep. You want to have new customers, so you want to make it easy for them to onboard. Do you ever really offboard customers? Um, most organizations don't when it comes to CIAM. Um, I think it's important to um, take away access as no longer needed. Um, and, you know, it really kind of, I think it depends on the risk profile of the access. So if a user, um, you know, what I see happen sometimes in a CIM environment is that um, some identities will time out. They'll reach, they haven't been logged into in two years and they'll, they won't be able to, to log in without going through a special workload to reactivate them. Mm-hmm. But it really depends on the organization. It depends on the risk of, of the access. Also probably depends a lot on if it's a paid service that somebody's getting access to. If they're no longer paying for the service, they shouldn't get access same time usually people don't delete so there's a difference between deleting and disabling and removing roles and things like that okay so that was user lifecycle management what about uh privilege access management yeah and so privilege access management is typically not you know within your siam space you're not people were thinking about getting access to um the customers are not the same people who are thinking about you know, managing their own access, some access of their staff to manage their applications and things like that. But it it's important. And it, it you know, when you're doing the analysis, it's it's an important part of you know saying that systems are more secure because of the work that you've done. First thing I, I came up with was at least having a full accounting of what is privilege access within your environment. Because I, I feel like this is usually um, an item where a lot of our clients can't even start to produce a, a list of here's what we consider to be privilege access. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, people people struggle with the same thing, right? Application inventories, who has access to what, and a subcomponent of who has access to what is the privilege access associated with with individuals, because a lot of times these are secondary accounts or even accounts that may be more difficult to map back to a user because they don't use, you know, a, you know the, a similar username or don't assign something like a employee number or an attribute to be able to track it. So being able to understand what those are makes sense. And, you know, there are tools that will help. I know CyberArk, for example, has their DNA scan, which, you know, will do some, some scanning for AD environments and, and Unix and stuff like that. And I'm sure other vendors have similar things, but if you don't know where your keys of the castle are, um, you really need to work on <laughs> identifying those so that you can properly secure them. Right, and can't manage what you can't you can't um, measure. Yeah, and so um, yeah, the, I mean the real changing area when it comes to web applications and you know these types of environments for um, from a privilege access perspective is DevOps. And we hear about DevOps all the time. What does it really mean? Well, it's the automation of deployment of infrastructure and of code. And the automation of all that runs with scripts and with robots. And all those require credentials. And, you know, the most basic level, you could kind of hard code those credentials into scripts or into uh, your bots or applications that are doing the automated deployment. And then you move up the maturity scale and you have those passwords, those credentials 
better managed. And really that's where we want to drive our clients toward is getting away from, you know, bad. And the reason this has happened is that everything's been shifting out to the crowd, out to the cloud in terms of infrastructure as a service. So a lot of web applications moving out to the cloud, they're being containerized rather than using servers and information security has been mostly focused on what's in their own within their own fence. And now things are moving out to the clouds happening so fast and it's happening on new technologies that they may or may not understand. And so, you know, some of those same controls that were designed for within the firewall don't work as well when they get outside the firewall and you're using new technologies and robots. So um, DevOps is an important concern when it comes to CIM. It's an area that we, we look at pretty extensively. Yeah, I would imagine also things like reviewing access and be able to do that. You need to be able to, you know, pull logs from, from different spots to be able to effectively figure out who did who did what to what, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, you need to have the information, you have to have the logs, and then you have to have the right people reviewing them. And, you know, and the amount of log data is obviously too much for, you know, normal individuals to go through. So you have to be able to use alerting tools and and uh, technology to pull out what's important in like a, a, a SIM tool is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. So here's a question. Where does delegated administration fall? Would you consider that a privileged access? Um, so if I'm a customer, for example, and I can administrate other users in my organization, um, you know, it's probably more of a B2B use case, but I could see something like a you know, a family head, right, can add their spouse or other people, family, kids, whatever it is, to some sort of account. Yep. Would you consider that a privileged access? I guess it doesn't come to my mind as privileged access because, you know, using the, the definition of privileged access as the keys to the kingdom, um, I definitely don't feel like those accounts have a very big kingdom. Now, they are certainly more powerful than other accounts, and so I think an organization has to treat them differently. But I don't want to make the privilege access picture so big that it becomes um, unmanageable. What I'm really concerned with on the privilege access side is the ability to you know, manage infrastructure, manage applications, manage data, and get to those things and you know, perform destructive behavior like either exfiltrating the data or bring down the applications or change them the way they were. So that's really the focus that I take with privilege access. The things you're talking about, definitely those accounts have more power. Um, and especially when you talk about delegated administrator, maybe it's a person who can manage a hundred thousand users or a million users. Well, now you're starting to get into the area where I, I do have more of a major concern. Like, I'd be more willing to throw them into the privilege access bucket and okay. maybe create some additional special controls to monitor and limit their access. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think maybe in that use case, maybe it belongs more as you know a, a well-defined authorization as to who has that specific entitlement that can manage other users. So I was just curious right. what you what you thought about it. Well, I do think um, there should be controls in that area. Like for example, if if certain activities are taken, an email goes out. So that way, if the account was compromised, there's a chance that the person will be alerted that something happened on their account. 
some administrative action was performed, someone was added to their phone plan, and they didn't do that. So then they can go and investigate further. Makes sense. Um, what's next? So the, the last two areas are, these are, are ones that kind of are ads or uh, changes from normally what we do. So uh, identity data management, AKA data governance. And so really what I wanted to talk about here is especially when you have a large environment with multiple applications and you have now uh, a higher reliance on a centralized profile of data about a user. How is that data going to be updated? Who are the owners of that data? Um, should that data overwrite what's in an application or should what's in an application come back and overwrite what is in um, in the central IM store? And then, you know, at a more technical level, what are the you know types of data, the lengths of the of the data, things like that, and making sure that there's a, a common data dictionary, but that there's a governance process or some data governance office or some data governance formal discipline to, you know, to make sure that these data issues are being managed because if the data gets out of control, when you start connecting a lot of production systems together, um, you could start running into major issues. It won't take yeah, long is- to figure out the major issues either. <laughs> yeah. And this is an a, a area of prime importance for a lot of organizations because they're really trying to understand who the customer is, right? Who's using their services or products, whatever it may be. And it's imperative to have good identity data management to be able to map back behaviors into individuals and get those insights that they're looking for. Um, You know, it can be a little bit weird sometimes, I think, for people to understand, you know, how their data is being used. and, And maybe that's where things like privacy and consent will come in. And we'll talk about that probably a little bit, but, um, you know, proper data management is important and identity man- proper identity data management is, I think, critical for a successful CIAM program and services. That's right. And I think the point that you're bringing up is that the identity layer of all this and the data management is foundational to other initiatives that an organization was put together with customer data. So if you want to make sense of your CRM data, having that that correlated user of here's a person, here's a human being, and they use all these applications. Here's some core information about them. And then we're also pulling in oper- you know, um, transactional data and other operational data that may even be occurring outside of IT systems and pulling that into one big central picture in the CRM. Well, the identity data is kind of key to pulling all that together. Yeah, absolutely. Got the you know data analytics that that pull on top of that, and you know that's that's holy grail for I think for for a lot of marketing <laughs> organizations, yeah, yeah. whether they're internal or you know external. It's holy grail, and then there are a lot of organizations that are doing it. <laughs> right? They they said, but this is this is critical. You know, obviously the big tech companies are doing it at a at a crazy rate, but I think a lot of retail organizations are doing it as well, where they have, you know, so many um, bits of data and they just put it all into a NoSQL database and then allow, you know, data and data analysts. So like I've met people, I met somebody in my MBA program 12 years ago and he was uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. And um, I asked him what he did and he said, he was a data analyst. 
for a pharmaceutical company. I, at the time, I just had no, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. And what it was really about was he was able to take these large blobs of data, a lot of times coming from research and things like that, and make sense of it. And there are people in organizations that do that all the time. You have to have the data, though. You have to be able to get the foundational connections between the human being and, and, and all of these transactions. Yeah. Now, to guard against that, and, you know, you, you have things like privacy and consent, and that's, I think that's a new area that you're looking to explore as part of the of maturity, right? Yeah, but if I could just one more thing about the um, uh, the data governance is they have all this data and you've collected from all these different sources. So everybody in the organization who has an app has contributed. That doesn't mean everybody in the organization should get full access to the data, right? This is now the, this becomes a, a gold mine of data. And part of data governance has to define who gets what access to that data. So I just wanted yeah, to throw that, that out And there. that may be considered privileged access, you know, depending on the type of data that's being looked at too. So, but you know, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So on the privacy and consent side, I mean, this is some, this is on the tip of everyone's tongue right now. Um, I think the first thing is that an organization has to put together a privacy strategy and that they have an evergreen strategy in place. So they may have designed their privacy statement and their privacy strategy around something like GDPR. Um, and that's great because that's the one that kind of came along and I don't want to say it came along first, but it, it had the biggest impact. Um, and But additional privacy regulations are coming out. We know more are going to come out. So you need an evergreen strategy. How are you going to um, meld those in as time goes on? What are your thoughts there? Well, it's important to be able to understand, especially when it comes to regulations. Now, um, you know, from a, from a regulation standpoint, I don't necessarily think that a lot of regulations really tackle the important part of data and consent, and in some areas doesn't make a sense. Make sense, and I'm thinking things like you know GDPR and CCPA and all the equivalents that are going to end up being out there. Um, it it imposes an ideal state on organizations that makes it sometimes difficult to comply or expensive to comply. And at the end of the day, there's just so much data out there. I don't know if it makes sense. So when it comes to the privacy and consent, you've got to, at least today, you've got to be able to, you know, do things like, you know, right to be forgotten and be able to export data and see how it's being used and, you know, make sure it's not being used unless there's been, you know, express consent. So being able to track all that is, is a critical compartment of how you manage the consumer experience, both internal and external. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, as, as a consumer myself, the approach that a lot of companies are taking is we're going to put together a privacy statement. Privacy statement is going to give us wide, wide uh, wielding uh, ability to do whatever we want with your private data. And by agreeing to that, you're agreeing to us doing that. And so if you go and you, you want to use a, a website to shop for cars and they say, well, we can use, we can share your data with third parties. And they're just, I believe a lot of organizations are that people don't read that. So I think there's two things. I think there's one is complying with the regulation, which just telling people that if you want to use our site, you're agreeing to our privacy statement, uh, 
that may be enough in some cases. Uh, however, it doesn't do a good job of meeting my, at least I think the common standard for um, what are good business practices and what the spirit of you know these privacy regulations get to. So I think as every organization has to determine where they want to be on that spectrum. But I think being forthcoming and honest is is the you know the best path, and then dial it in from there. Yeah, and you know, I, I have thoughts about this, and and, and actually, we're going to be talking with uh, Richard Bird uh, in an upcoming episode. He's part of uh, you know the Ping organization, chief customer information officer, and he has some thoughts on this too. So we'll probably dive into it more there, but. You know, these organizations, they come up with these, you know, user acceptance things that you have to click through. Nobody reads those. No. Just, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, it's, it's a bunch of text. People don't read it. They might be even clicking through it on a mobile phone. So it's even harder to read or harder, harder to, to pull in. And basically, you're just allowing, you know, the, whatever that happens, happens. All in the name of using whatever service. So you're trading, you know, your, your privacy and your data in exchange of that. If it's free, you're the product. That's pretty much how it works, <laughs> at least from That's my right. point. So, you know, I think what you hit on was business practice. And I think organizations are tackling this different ways. And I think if you're in the space of an ad network, right, your whole business is trying to display a number of ads to the appropriate parties and showing, you know, click-through rates and all that good stuff, um, you may have a different viewpoint as to, you know, an organization that really does take consumer privacy seriously. Um, right. Not that I think that they're perfect, but Apple, for example, right? They came up with um, sign in with Apple, which obfuscates email addresses associated with logins, right? So now I know they have a host of other, you know, potential issues and things, but it's a it's a totally different viewpoint as opposed to, you know, maybe another organization that is looking to exploit customer data versus protect it. Yeah. And, and I think you made a good point. If it's free, you're the product. And I am willing to make some trade-offs for that. I feel like I, I need to know what those trade-offs are because yep. to your point, you go through the EULA and you're just like, I don't even know what, I, I don't speak legalese and I'm <laughs> right. confused, but I want to use this website. So I'm going to go through. However, what really bothers me is if you have that same kind of agreement to use your utility provider's website or your bank's website or people who are companies that are making money from you, mm -hmm. you know, that on top of that, they want to sell your private data. I'm I, sure it's another revenue stream. And, you know, I, I still get things about my auto warranty for a car that I had back in the year 2000. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was many cars ago and I have no idea why they still think I have that vehicle. And, you know, every other vehicle, uh, you know, the, the joke is, you know, we've been trying to reach you about your, your, the expiration of your car warranty. I mean, it's, it's silly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't know. The one, the thing with like the utilities though, to me, their website is a utility and I don't really have a choice on whether or not to use it. So um, you should, their privacy policy should be uh, to the, the greatest extent in the favor of the consumer. And I and look using banks and things like that, it's the same thing. You know, you can't really not do online banking anymore. 
Yeah, I, some I, people mean, probably I, I begrudgingly like, accept it. I like convenience. So, you know, I use all the services that I'm sure that everyone else does. Um, but, you know, I think it's something from a more fundamental shift would need to take place from whether it's, you know, privacy or governance or whatever it may be at a regulation standpoint. Um, just be cognizant well, of, of that. I think it is going to take regulation and I'm not... I'm not a government first kind of person. I don't think that everything needs to be solved with regulation. However, I saw, <laughs> I'm going to get into coronavirus here, Jeff. <laughs> I saw the governor of Florida, I don't even know his name, get on TV today and, and lambast all these um, spring break people who were like 21 who were down in, you know, Clearwater Beach partying. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. They're partying in your state, on your beaches, in your bars that you haven't closed. You expect me to get mad at 21-year-olds for not making good decisions. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did a quick one like, on that. I think a little bit later, you know, they said, you know, they tried to enforce, you know, groups of 10 or more and social distancing and all that. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree there. You know, there was, there was nothing against the law or any direct statement saying you can't do this combined with, you know, the, at least before today, it seems like, you know, it seemed like you know, the message from media was that, you know, the, the young were not necessarily at risk or as much risk as, you know, people who may have, you know, different uh, immune therapy or immune issues um, or things like that, you know, the older population, but now we're starting to see that may not even be true. So, um, so yeah, I mean, plus also, you know, a lot of these kids, they probably, you know, dumped money on the spring break trip and they're not getting a refund. So they're caught in this. Well, do I, you know, do I blow the $2,000 that I just spent and not use it or do I go? And, you know, unfortunately um, it's, it's a, it's an interesting situation we put in, but, but um, yeah, no, I mean, here's the thing. It's this, when I was that age, I don't think I would have been that worried about coronavirus either. It's just, you know, yeah, I felt like as the governor, he's coming on TV and he's like, you know, making it sound like these kids are, you know, they're, they're so awful. Mm-hmm. All you do is close the bars. Every bar around me is closed. Right. You know, yeah, same here. like you're the governor, <laughs> you have power. Like stop trying to blame 20 year old kids for the problem. You know, you have the control. You should be yeah, getting, and if you don't have the direct control, get on the policymakers in those areas. Call them out by name. I don't know. It's just the, the news is sensationalizing everything right now. Where it's like you know, it just it's a lot easier to put twenty year olds on TV or twenty one year olds on TV dancing at a bar saying, "Look at these irresponsible twenty one year olds." Yeah, twenty one year olds are irresponsible. Thanks for the breaking news. We we've known that. I think there's some personal responsibility, but I also think it is, it is a news story, right? I think there are, I know plenty of people that age that have, have accepted kind of where we're at and are doing, you know, what, what is perceived as the right thing. And, you know, staying at home, not going out, not, you know, not trying to help, you know, spread things out. So I have a niece who is, you know, in college this age, you know, super bright and she's in Colorado and she's on her way home back to California right now. Um, you know, to be home and not, you know, in the school environment. So, um, you know, a few bad apples might get all the news and I hate to say they're bad apples, but 
I don't want to overblow it, but it is certainly a combination, I think, of not accepting personal responsibility along with not having, you know, the appropriate structure and guidance from the decision-making authorities that both contribute to the issue. I'm telling you, right. Jeff, we should have we should have a show on one of these news channels. I don't think we'd probably agree on which news channel to be on, but um, it had to be our we own. We should have one. We'd have to have our own channel, right? Um, we should start a podcast. We should, you know, we should do that. We would probably have dozens of listeners, <laughs> if that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that one, but maybe. All right. Well, let's get off our soapbox and bring it back to IAM. So let me recap here. We've got uh, a few different capability areas that we look at. We look at IAM governance. We look at authentication, authorization, user lifecycle management, privilege access management, a data, data, data management or data governance, and then the privacy and consent factors. That's typically how we look at CIAM programs and look to assess the maturity. Any That's final right. thoughts, Jim? Final thoughts are this is going to continue to evolve, so maybe it'll be a, a topic again next year. Oh, yeah, maybe. Well, CIM is forever. Identities yes. are forever, at least until we figure out that, you know, we have some other way to, to name things. <laughs> right, until the uh, board, we're all part of the board. Right, then we'll just be numbers. <laughs> we'll, be all, we'll be all MAC addresses connected to some giant network. <laughs> oh, that's true. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good spot to leave it. Um, hope everyone is, you know, staying safe, staying healthy. And uh, on behalf of Jim, we'll talk to you folks in the next one. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.